Hallelujah, Christ is risen. He is risen Hallelujah. Yep, don't forget the Amen. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Almighty God, grant that we who have celebrated the Lord's resurrection may by your grace confess in our life and conversation that Jesus is Lord and God. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Okay, a couple of housekeeping items first before uh, we finish chapter one, and we are going to finish chapter one no matter what. I'm just going to keep reading. If you're asking questions, I'm just going to read. We're going to be done with it. So next week, if you're following along, we will start chapter two. The book, again, that we have been reading is The Saving Truth, Doctrine for Lay People uh, by uh, uh, Sainted, meaning he has passed from this life uh, to life everlasting, uh, Reverend Dr. Professor Kurt Marquardt, okay? So that's the book we've been reading, and uh, he packs a punch in chapter one. That's why we've taken so long to get through it. There's just so much there, and uh, so that's, that's the only reason we've taken that long, right? Yep, Okay. Um, Juanita, our church secretary, is on vacation. Um, Wednesday, some of you might know, was uh, uh, Administrative Assistance Day, and uh, so uh, we gave her all sorts of gifts to make sure that she comes back after her vacation. Um, and so Thursday was day one of vacation for her, so she will be gone all this next week as well, which means that coming to church during the week is kind of going to be like a potluck. I don't know what you're going to get. Um, it, it, you know, so Pastor Grady and I are trying to kind of cover phones, Deb in the preschool office. So if you call in, you get the answering machine, please leave a message. Don't get frustrated and, and hang up. Uh, if you stop by, try and track us down. Uh, we've, we've tried to get everything covered, but you know what that's like when you've got places to go and people to see. So plus the weather hasn't been good. So, you know, I'm not out golfing, right? So, okay. Oh, some of you laughed at that. Okay. Um, the other thing I wanted, there, there were just, uh, uh, I, you know, <clears throat> I have encouraged the elders to bring various questions, not only to me, but to Pastor Grady, um, as they have come up. And uh, we had one question um, that came up today, and it's a really good question. At the end of the Lord's Supper, you see the pastors and the elders kind of, uh, uh, it looks like we're pulled up to the bar. No, it doesn't. <laughs> we're standing around the altar. Okay, and there on the altar, what do we have on the altar, first of all? Let's just start the discussion this way. What on the, yeah, that's exactly right. So that which is, a, this bread, this wine is consecrated, meaning God's word has done its work on it, right? What about the bread and wine you can't see? Back on the credence table, you know, 10 feet away behind the wall in the sacristy or down here in the kitchen. Is it that bread and wine we're consecrating? Nope. And that's why we pull up the bread and the wine. We speak Jesus' words over it, because the word does the work, right? The word makes a thing what it is, and it makes that bread and that wine the body and blood of Jesus, okay? Now, what are we supposed to do with that body and blood that is also bread and wine? What did Jesus say to do with it above everything else? Now, he said to put it in your pocket, or hang it from a keychain and hang it from your rearview mirror so you'll be protected from angry drivers on 465. I'm joking. He said to eat and drink it, right? So that's the main thing Jesus said to do with it. Eat and drink for the forgiveness of sins. So uh, we commune those that are assisting first. You know, the pastor communes himself first. 
And simply the easiest way to understand that is if you've ever been on an airplane before, if they tell you the oxygen is gonna fail, what do you do first? Run around and put masks on everybody else? Put the mask on yourself first so you can then what? Serve others. Okay, so that's been the long-standing practice in the church as well. The, the, the presiding minister, the guy who's kind of like the, the, the big kahuna, you know, the, the, the tuna, he's the big guy for the day. He communes himself, then he communes those who are assisting, then he communes everybody. Really simple. And that's been the practice of the church now for 16, 17 years. Okay, so after all that's done, are you good so far? Okay, so after everybody has been communed, there is something called reliquae. Anybody remember their Latin? Le there, that's very simple. Yeah, reliquae. <laughs> uh, reliquae is leftovers or that which remains, okay? Um, so, you know, you'll see us right before the sermon, Pastor and I, um, we won't tell you how we divide it up. We kind of ha have a little game with it. One of us counts, you know, a certain side, and the other one counts the other, and then we, we talk about who's not here today. No, we don't. We do that during the week. And uh, anyway, so we count, and so we got a rough count. So say we got 130 people that, that we count, so we're going to consecrate about 130, 140 pieces of bread and approximate number of, of, of wine of the Lord's body and blood, right? Now, because we're not perfect, you don't think we are, do you? We're never going to consecrate the exact amount. If we need more, we just consecrate more, right? But what happens with the reliquy? Well, what you see us do, okay, forget that I said it looks like we're belling up to the bar because that would be totally improper. If we have too much bread and wine, we don't do that. Then we reserve it and we might consume it afterwards, or if it's at the early service, we might use it at the second service. Normally, there's not very much left. And between the pastors and the elder on duty, we simply do what Jesus said, which is what? So whoever asks the question, that's the simple answer. We just do what Jesus said to do it. That's the best explanation I can give you. Okay? Um, hold on one second. The other thing I want to say is this, is that no, go ahead. Ask your question. Oh, good question. Good question. Sure, sure. And you know what? If, there's a, if there is a lot left over, then we will certainly do that. And we have done that. So God is not a God of doubt, nor is he a God of confusion. He's a God of certainty. So what that means is we want to create as simple and straightforward a process as possible for who? For everyone. For the altar guild, what do you do with it? Um, you know, I've had ladies in the past where we've either reserved something over um, or stuff got mixed up with something else. What do we do with it? God doesn't want you to have any guilt about that sort of stuff. So create a simple process for it to do that. That's all. Um, and so, so, the, so the answer to your question is, if, if we consecrate too much, that's exactly what we do. And thank you for that, okay? Um, if we consecrate just a fair amount that can be eaten and drunk, we simply eat and drink there because that's the table that is set. That's the meal that's being held, right? So you could bring your grandma into it if you want, who told you when you sit down at the table, you should always do what? Eat your food, right? Clean your plate or one of our sons doesn't like broccoli. 
And so we keep an eye on, on how much broccoli is left over on his plate or ends up in the trash can. Clean your plate and, and eat your food, okay? And so we clean the table afterwards. That's probably the easiest way to, to say it, okay? Any other questions on that? We, we, I know we've kind of covered a little bit of that before. Some of you, that's old, but that's always good stuff. Nothing? Really? You ready to finish chapter one? I like it. I like it. Okay, so here we go. We're going to pick up uh, Mr. Matthias. I'm going to read real quick. We're on scriptures and creeds, which is page 26. You're going to need to scroll back up just a little bit. This is the last section of chapter one that Professor Marquard has for us. I'm going to read here about a page and a half uh, just to kind of get through because we've had a couple weeks off here with the confirmation and with Easter Sunday uh, to make sure we, we grasp how he is closing this very important and pivotal chapter. Scripture and creeds. <clears throat> Professor Marquardt writes, Noncommittal religious chatter is one thing, but confession is quite another. It was not enough for the twelve simply to report what various people were saying about Jesus. They themselves had to take a stand. Jesus asked them point blank, Who do you say I am? Then Peter confessed in the name of all, and let's read it together. You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. So all of our great creeds and confessions have as their embryo, and that's a great concept, as it were, the New Testament's Jesus is Lord. Say that together. Jesus is Lord. At first sight, it may seem far-fetched to trace the Nicene Creed, let alone the formula of Concord, to that simple New Testament slogan. Yet even though an oak tree also does not look much like an acorn, it is the acorn at a later stage of development. Similarly, compressed beneath the surface simplicity of, and let's read it together, Jesus is Lord, lies the full Trinitarian dynamic of God's saving self-revelation. Christian truth is both simple and complex, right? So God is there where his name is. Same thing with the bread and wine, he's there. Therefore, and this kind of follows our conversation we just had, we want to be as respectful as possible, right? I mean, you should want to. I mean, if you really believe that he's there then let's simply do what he says and, and respect that, okay? So three words confess it all, Jesus is Lord, yet not all the books in the world can exhaust it. Someone has said that Holy Scripture is like a river in which lambs may safely wade and elephants swim. Doesn't make sense, does it? Lambs may safely wade and elephants swim. That's a paradox, remember? How can you have a river where lambs can wade and elephants who are much bigger than lambs yet swing, swim? And the simple answer is it's two different things at the same time. Same thing with bread and wine that is body and blood. Same thing with you and your baptism, correct? Washed with water, but yet clothed with Jesus. Can we look around the room and see whether we wear the robes of Jesus who's been baptized and who hasn't? No. So two completely different things, spiritual, physical, connected, okay? Today, many deplore what seems to them a tendency to needless, to needless elaboration and complication. They grow impatient with theological hair-splitting and would have us all abandon the scholasticism in favor return to the simple Bible. This impulse amounts to simplistic nostalgia, though. It is true, of course, that not all theological development has been healthy, a great deal of it has, in fact, been mistaken and even perverse. 
Just as an embryo can suffer genetic damage and grow hideously misshapen, so also theology when its internal controls are disturbed. Yet this is just why creeds and confessions are necessary. There must be readily applicable clinical tests to tell the healthy from the pathological, right? So I haven't had a uh, checkup with a doctor in a couple years. So once I find a doctor here in Zionsville or surrounding area, what's that doctor probably going to want to do? Go on a diet, pastor. <laughs> or looking at your records, you put some weight on. And then he's going to have me go draw blood. And they're going to check for cholesterol, which there's a history of high cholesterol in my family. And my mind's always kind of been borderline. right? And he's going to check all the other stuff. And he's going to subject me to some tests, right? And he's going to compare my physical body right now, right? Look away, look away. He's going to compare that to what someone of my age, my weight, my, all that stuff should be. Is that fair? He's going to do that. Now, we do that in the same way with our faith. We take that which we believe and we set it against what? How do we test our faith? How do we do that? To see what we believe. There's a number of different tests. One would be, are my beliefs in line with, are you ready for this? The apostles. That'd be a pretty good place to start, wouldn't it? I mean, the first pastors of the church, what, what they believed, I mean, they actually saw Jesus, correct? So what did they believe? What did they teach their own disciples down the road? And we actually have some of that written down. There's a document called the Didache. And there's a number of other writings from early church. So we study some of that, okay? Now, for you as lay people, you probably don't have access to some of those books or have them on your shelf, but don't worry. We have people like Professor Marquardt and Pastor McKay and Pastor Grady, you know, who can repeat to you what the other smart people said, Okay. All right, and, and we'll regurgitate to you. You can do other simple basic tests. What do we teach our kids? What, are we, what did Luther require as a minimum, a bare minimum, before someone would receive the Lord's body and blood for the first time? Three things, really simple. It was his test. Ten commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and the Creed, right? So the first three chief parts of Luther's small catechism which are just the six basics of the, of the faith, right? So if you want to talk about what Luther thought the tests that were needed, Ten Commandments, Apostles' Creed, Lord's Prayer, that's a minimum. And then after that, Baptism, Lord's Supper, and Confession, Absolution, okay? Power of the Keys, Office of the Keys, you got it? So that's a really good place to start, okay. Oh, I started talking instead of reading, I'm sorry. So, where am I? The ever-churning tides of culture and language require that the message of Holy Scripture be constantly interpreted and applied anew. So this needs to continue to happen, right? You don't go see a doctor once when you're 40 and then just ignore that until you're... There you go. <laughs> you're speaking from experience? now. we'll move on. All right. So, as this happens, counterfeit interpretations arise as well as genuine ones. In economics, it is said that bad money drives out the good. In theology, too, care must be taken to screen out attractive falsehoods, lest they swamp the unflattering truth. 
Then would arise, arise a sludge, that's a great word, of fickle opinions, presenting the unwary with the illusion of freedom of choice among equally good options, right? And you'll hear that banner wave sometimes, you know, we, we're free in the gospel, and we can kind of do what we want. You know, think, think of the Lutheran church as a whole from some of you that are maybe in your 80s, some of you that are in your 70s, 60s, 50s, has the church changed much since you were a child or a youth? I mean, just, just think about it. I'm just simply asking the question of how has the church changed historically over time? Have all those changes been for the better? And there's been some things that have been good. There's no question of that. But there's also been some stuff that's, can we just say, can you just stick your tongue out and go, <laughs> okay, you know what I mean. All right. So, now, where am I? Oh, the moment one takes a particular stand, one has a creed. And, and creed simply means credo is Latin for I believe. Orthodox, which means right teaching, orthodox creeds and confessions safeguard the genuine sense of Scripture against distortions. So when conflicting teachings compete for the loyalty of Christians in the name of Scripture, one cannot simply stick with the Bible itself and ignore all those pesky interpretations. The whole point is to recognize what is the correct understanding of the Bible and to assert it against counterclaims. Failure to do so gives equal rights to all views and effectively robs Scripture of any and all sense and meaning. Somebody summarize for me Mark Hart's point here. It's very simple. What's that? Oh, don't get so big 50-cent words with everybody else. So on the one hand, you have... Where, what is truth? Where is truth found first and foremost for a Christian? The B-I-B-L-E, right? Is that the book for me and you? Right, okay, so you start with the Bible. On the other hand, then what is Marquardt saying we also have to pay attention to? Scriptures number one. Oh, somebody said creeds, I think. Which means what? what how would you summarize what creeds are? Creeds are what the church as a whole has believed or confessed over time. Also, how it has dealt with different issues. If you have children, do you want them to make the same mistakes that you did when you were 16, 17, 18, 25, or 35? No. So what are you going to most likely do? You're going to probably teach a little bit about some of the mistakes you made. You may not tell them all of those things when they're, say, 15 or 16. They may have to wait till they're a little older right, and they can understand it, but you want them to learn from your experiences and not make the same mistake twice. Why is it important that we teach our kids in our grade schools, junior highs, and high schools the history of the United States? Why should they understand the Constitution? Why should they understand how the state legislature works? Why? Really? It's who we are so that we don't have to go through a revolutionary war or a civil war again. So that we understand the freedom that we have as a democracy, and I know we have issues, every nation and country does, but to prevent socialism, I mean communism, you name it. All the, There's other stuff around the world. Is that important to you, that your schools teach some of that? So how much more important should it be for you and for us as a church to teach those same things in the church. Do you see that? How the church has developed. It's history. You know? How it was that you have Santa Claus 
literally punching a guy by the name of Arius at the Council of Nicaea. That's a great story. We'll cover that at Christmas. Okay? Um, you know, why did they have these debates over Jesus being both man and God at the same time? You know, where did the Apostles' Creed develop? The Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed. You know, as Lutherans, we have the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, right? And it's not about grape jelly. Uh, it's, it's about, you know, stances that had to be made over and against not only the church but the world. You know, here I stand, this is what I believe. So we use all those things. Okay, any questions on that? Okay. So, decisions about the correct understanding of Scripture are embodied in creeds and confessions, and thus have been preserved throughout the centuries. We also have creedal hymns like Philippians 2, 6-11 and 1 Timothy 3.16 that document the practice of framing short summaries of the faith already in New Testament times. So we even hear a little bit about this being done in the Bible, even though not everything that was done during biblical times has been recorded for us. Got it? Without such creedal decisions, nothing is ever settled. One would have to reinvent the wheel every time a difference arises. Some people would say this, no creed but Christ. But that is itself a creed and even a self-contradictory one. Since the church is not an occult society, its worship contrasts deeply with all mythological mumbo-jumbo. Note the pointed contrast between myth and truth in 2 Timothy 4.4, Titus 1.14, and 2 Peter 1.16. It's not epic fantasies or mind-numbing frenzies uh, that shape Christian worship, but rather the very being of God himself and all the awesomeness of his mercy. Okay? So very simply, as you've heard me say this too, we have to be careful we don't fall down the slippery slope of mysticism even in the practice of our worship. Everything we do in worship should teach something and show something. You might have noticed last Sunday and this Sunday, and we'll have it now for a few more weeks, there's something called a gospel processional. Why do we take the extra time to read the gospel from the middle of the congregation? Somebody annoy me and raise your hand and say, because that's what the Orthodox and the Roman Catholics do. Somebody please say that. Thank you. Not just that we as pastors are bringing the gospel to you. Who is here in your midst? Mm, bingo. Ooh, that's good. That's exactly right. Jesus Christ is literally here. He's the word. And, and, and now if this, this isn't, Jesus doesn't desire necessarily, you know, just to, to be up here, you know, as you kind of bow down and you throw flowers at him and dollar bills and, you know, and, and he waves like the homecoming queen or the pageant winners. No, no, no. Jesus wants to be out here for you. Yeah, it's a little weird. But he wants to come and he wants you to know that I'm here to teach you, to preach to you. I'm here with you. You got it? And so that's just one little way that we can do it. Do we have to do it? No. And we don't. But do you understand why? And we won't do it every Sunday. What? Why not every Sunday? Because there's probably a few people who don't understand it. And do it anyway. I guess we could do it every Sunday. I like to... Um, what? Gee, you're the pastor's wife. You know how this works. I recognize that people come from different traditions, even in the Missouri Synod. Is that fair to say? 
Some of you didn't grow up with hearing your pastor's chant, right? You didn't. And perhaps the first time you heard it, you're like, whoa, Roman Catholic, right? Or Orthodox, or I mean, I mean whatever. Um, and, I, and so it's, so do we as pastors chant all the time? No. And not all pastors, first of all, can chant, right? And if they're not good at it, maybe they shouldn't, okay? So, I mean, you have all of that. So same thing with like our divine services. There's different customs and traditions you notice within the divine services. We want to teach those things to you. Uh, we want you to appreciate them, but you're going to have your likes and dislikes. This goes back to the same question. Does everybody make the sign of the cross? Of course you don't. Some of you weren't raised to do that. Does that make you any less of a Christian than those that do? No. And don't you ever think that it does. That's a matter of personal piety. You have that freedom. Some people bow a little bit more when God's name is, is, is read or when the cross comes through. Some just stand and sing joyfully. In that sense, you're free. But understand why some people do it, okay? And know what you believe, right? As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is what I believe. This is how I want to practice my faith, right? So because the gospel processional, you'll notice, is not actually listed in the hymnal, it just has the gospel reading, it's one option that the church has done over many years to do it, Okay? Same thing with consuming the reliquary after the service. Is it a law you have to do that? No, most actually don't. Why do I like to do it? Because I simply like to do what Jesus said. Take and eat, take and drink, and then there's no confusion. Then the altar guild doesn't have to get all you know, upset about, oh, did I mix it up with this or mix it up with that? Or people wonder, hey, what happens with that leftover bread and wine up there? What are they going to do with it? You know? So then there's no confusion. Then the meal's over. It's done. Okay. Does that answer your question, Mrs.? Preacher's wife, McKay. All right. See, this, this is why we don't get through the, because I'm joking. I'm joking. That was a good one. We have a lot of fun in our house. Okay. Uh, let's pick up at decisions. Decisions about the, oh, no, we already did that. Let's go down to since the church we got there. Okay. The church was well aware from the beginning that if the resurrection of Jesus was not utterly factual, the whole thing was worse than useless. So now, now Marquardt is going, you know, he's tying with this whole Jesus is Lord thing with how that affected the church, what they believe, what they confess in the creedal hymns, and he's bringing it back here. I love where he goes with this. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, right? Hallelujah, Christ is risen. Our faith hinges on this. So, uh, the solemn attestation of 1 Corinthians 15.4 that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures is regarded even by leading critical scholars as a creedal formula or a small short creed cited by St. Paul from earlier eyewitness sources. So the Nicene Creed took up this language almost verbatim. The Nicene Creed further forms a very good example of how new language sometimes becomes necessary precisely to maintain the old truths unchanged, right? Words mean things. And so before you have a conversation with someone, you have to make sure that you at least have the definition of the same words, right? So if I talk with one of my Roman Catholic friends, they use the word grace. I use the word grace. We have two completely defini different definitions. And we need to make sure that we establish that before we engage in conversation. Otherwise, when they hear me say grace, they're thinking what? Their definition, right? It's kind of like some of you were raised that uh, a faggot was a bundle of sticks. Has that term changed over the years? Yes. In a derogatory way. It has. 
correct? So you need to know, you need, words mean things, okay? And that's why when you talk about just basic education, or I would say even classical education, the first stage is what? Grammar. It's grammar. It's learning words and learning their meanings at a very young age, okay? All right, let's move on. Nobody wants to talk about classical education, obviously. <laughs> the Nicene Creed for, further forms a very good example of how new language sometimes becomes necessary precisely to maintain the old truths unchanged. The old truth was that Jesus is God. This Arius and his followers denied, although their language grew more weaselly as time went on. So when the Arians began to say, Jesus is Lord, this was the old language of the Bible being used to cover up the new falsehood that Jesus was not really God. So there was a guy by the name of Arius. He was teaching that Jesus cannot be both God and man at the same time. But he continued to say what the church had always said, Jesus is Lord, but teach it differently. Do you see what's going on here? That's why just because even amongst Christian denominations, the same words may be used, may have a total different meaning, right? Uh, or why, uh, did it just come out here, what was it, two weeks ago, that uh, uh, the uh, current Pope has now allowed readings from the Quran within the prayer offices and mass? Did anybody see that? Yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, within divine services, okay? And so, um, and then he has, he has really kind of slipped on this one. Uh, he would say that uh, we do all worship the same God. Do we worship the same God as Muslims? No. We don't. Two different, two different gods, okay? And if you need to do some study on that, or I've got resources on my shelf and everything, okay? All right. So we need, we need to understand what, what the words uh, mean. So... Let's go back to this. So when the Arians said Jesus is Lord, this was the old language of the Bible being used to cover up the new falsehood that Jesus was not really God. So to smoke out the denials and evasions, the Nicene Creed, and that was really a combination of the Council of Nicaea, which was in 325, and the Council at Constantinople in 381, they now framed new language. So even though for you know, 300, almost 400 years, they'd been saying things a certain way, they now use some new language to further clarify, and obviously the creed you know, got a little longer from what we would know as the Apostles' Creed. Um, so, God of God, you can read it with me, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. And especially now, read this, being of one substance with the Father. You'll notice all those things are different from the Apostles' Creed and even in some case, uh, later on, the um, Athanasian. Now, the last expression is homoousian in Greek. That was especially hated by the Arians. They opposed it as newfangles. Yet just this newfangled language preserved the old truth, while the old language was used to conceal new error. So when bad things happen to good words, it's probably time for a creed to set matters right. So I remember arguing with my mom over and over again, so I knew what words I shouldn't say at home. That was pretty obvious, right? And I had welts on my bottom to prove that. Um, or she always had ivory soap for some reason, and that did not taste very good, if you know what I mean. Um, and so then as a young kid, well, then I started to make up other words that 
kind of were the same as the other words. And I thought I was, you know, smarty pants. So instead of saying, you know, OMG, I would say, uh, oh my gosh. And guess what? I got my bottom whacked and my mouth wiped out anyway with soap. Why did my mom do that? I wasn't using the G word. I had used a word that I thought I had invented, but it really had been around. I probably had heard it from other people. What was I meaning to say? <laughs> Are you, you picking up what I'm laying down here? You can substitute all you want, but even though I'm using a different word, was the meaning still the same? Huh. Okay. Um, now, I swore I would never pull that, you know what, on my boys when I became a dad, but guess what? I have. <laughs> you know, I was like, and my parents, hey, it's a completely different word. So instead of that, I'm just going to make up something else. But all the while, my mind is thinking what? So, I mean, you know, when, when you know, man looks at the outward deeds, but the Lord looks at the, the Lord knows. You can try and cover up whatever your sin is in any way, shape, and form you want, but, but the Lord knows. So just give that a little bit of thought, okay? Uh, and you might practice that differently in your house with certain words or derivations of them, but What's, what's, the really, what's the real intent of saying this? Or if a word sounds like something else, and little kid's like, well, I didn't say that word, I said, well, does it really matter? That's the question. Okay, is that, is that fair? Anybody want to argue with me on that, or Professor Marquardt? Okay. Uh, where are we at now? The classic creeds and confessions, is that right? The classic creeds and confessions all arose in times of great ferment in the church. There have been two such creed-forming ages. The first settled the great battles about Christ as both God and man, which occupied the church's uh, attention really in the first 400 years. Some thousand years later, the great upheavals of the Reformation age came. And the debate at that time turned on the nature of the salvation gained by Christ and the terms on which it was offered to sinners. And over the last two centuries, and, and I'll let here someone talk about postmodernism when we get to it if you want, over the last two centuries since the Enlightenment, Christianity has experienced probably the deepest crisis of all in the systematic subversion of its biblical foundations. Some churches have understood and responded to this crisis better than others. But so far, no creed or confession has crystallized out of this conflict which would command general assent as a proper settlement. Why? Well, for one thing, perhaps such general settlements, settlements are no longer feasible after the confessional splintering of Christendom which followed the Reformation. Yet there is a deeper reason which makes it difficult even for smaller portions of Christendom to take a stand and make it stick. And that reason, and I think you'll notice I've got this highlighted... Ooh, I have a lot more highlighted there than I do in my book. Okay. That reason is likely to be found in the skeptical spirit of the times, which shapes public opinion in the industrialized world and seeps, along with carcinogenic pollutants, into our very bones. In this murky light, all creeds are suspect and no truth can be final. Doubt rears its head, right? And that's why we've seen an increase of what we would call non-denominational churches and that sort of thing. It's a basic, you know, distrust of, of any type of organization, which is really kind of ironic because they're still an organization. I mean, you know, it's kind of like the whole creed thing. You still end up having your own creeds, even when you say you don't. It's just, it's, you know, it's really kind of ridiculous when you think about it that way. 
Um, so convenience sake, we may distinguish and pay attention to what the good professor is teaching us between advanced doubt and beginner's doubt. Got it? So advanced doubt, hold up your one hand, you can stretch, and beginner's doubt on the other hand. Got it? Okay. Advanced doubt considers all religions equally questionable. Beginner's doubt holds that Christianity is generically true, but that no one particular church's version of it can be right while the others are wrong. Are you picking up what he's laying down? And maybe you've been on one of these two sides before. Okay, I know I have. Okay, um, when I finished my second year at seminary, okay, and you're probably going to want to throw things at me when you hear this, I was not ready to be a Lutheran Church Missouri Synod pastor. I wasn't sure that Missouri Synod had it all figured out. I went through two years of seminary because the Holy Spirit had led me there, and I was just going to finish up. I was going to go do my vicarage. I was going to make good grades. I was going to graduate, and I was going to go start my own church. Say, oh my. That was my plan. Because I, I had never really been taught, even though I was born Missouri Synod Lutheran, what it was to be Lutheran. And then I went on vicarage. And there was this crazy pastor called Clint Poppy who made me actually read the Book of Concord. He made me read it. And then we would talk about it. And he would review my sermons and he would make me go out with him while he did shut-in calls and hospital calls. And it was only then that I began to understand, number one, what a pastor really is supposed to do. And number two, what I as a Lutheran had never really understood before. And he confronted me with it because I was kind of the mullet-wearing, mullet praise band drummer kind of kid who the Missouri Synod's got to change. And I kind of grew up in a little bit of that. And if the church didn't change, then it was going to go to hell in a handbasket. We're not reaching our youth. I just go down to all the stuff you've heard before. And then finally he confronted me with scripture on that. I finally learned what evangelism was really all about. Primarily what Christ is doing through his word and sacraments. And not how many people I was actually confessing my faith to or giving testimony to. And it just totally rocked my world. You can ask my wife. Because she was there. That was the busiest year of my life on Vicarage. I've never studied so hard or worked so hard my entire life. Is that fair? My mystic was quoting that in any way? Okay. And it was, it was a real come to Jesus meeting for me. And then I came back to seminary my fourth year. I actually wanted to stay on Vicarage another year. And then when I got to seminary, I really wanted to kind of stay and study some more. And I could have done that. But that poor gal was ready to go start a family and pay bills. <laughs> Which is fine, and that needed to happen. Okay. All right. Are we good? Anything else? Okay. Um, where am I? Where am I? Help me out. Doubt? Doubt often hides itself between the Christian virtue of humility, yet it stands fundamentally at odds with the Christian outlook. It rather comports more with the spirit of the Hindu story about the elephant and the blind men. As the men touch different parts of the animal, they said, an elephant is like a rope, or... No, an elephant is like a pillar, and so on. The point made by the story, of course, is that our grasp of reality is much too limited to warrant making sweeping statements about the whole of it. This point is fair enough in appropriate places and times. However, it leaves utterly out of account direct divine revelation. So postmodernism is, is all about subjective 
truth. How you see things, how you perceive them, your experience, that now becomes for you absolute truth. A Christian says there is absolute truth, and it starts with God's direct divine revelation to me in Holy Scripture. That's job number one. And when you lose that, that's how you end up with all the denominations we have doing all sorts of stuff that they've never done before and believing all sorts of things they've never believed before. Okay? So since God knows the big picture exhaustively, whatever he says about anything must be the ultimate truth on that subject. This does not mean that theology offers an encyclopedic account of the cosmos any more than it implies that the biblical writers were omniscient, right? So the Bible does talk about science and that sort of thing, but does it give us everything about science and technology? No, of course not. And it's not meant to do that, okay? Um, it means only that however narrow the scope of the biblical revelation, it is absolutely true so far as it goes. A statement can be true without being the whole truth about everything. So now the biblical revelation is totally true, even though it is piecemeal and selective. It resembles a strip map, which, which shows nothing beyond 10 or 20 miles on either side of the main highway. In this sense, let's read it together, 1 Corinthians 13, 9. We know in part. So a pilgrim theology, remember how he talks about that? A pilgrim is one that, that is really... You're, you're a learner, you're subjecting yourself, and you're also you're on a journey to learn more, is also a modest theology. But whatever is revealed by God, of that we can and must be certain. This is the meaning of the New Testament, strong and sometimes severe stress on doctrine. And so when people talk to me about denominationalism or whatever, or doctrine this or doctrine that, I say, hey, let's open our Bibles. Because Scripture claims this for itself. Paul was all about that. Okay? And so you see Jesus, Matthew 16, 12, Romans 16, 17, 1 Timothy 4, 16, Titus 1 to 9, 2 John 9 to 10. We don't have time today to put those scripture passages up there. Go home and look at them on your own. Or after we're done here before the late service or before you leave, pull them up on your smart device. Okay? St. Paul would have been baffled by the idea that Christian doctrine remains somehow nebulous and doubtful. Christ told his church to proclaim the truth, not to discover it. And if you've got a book, make sure you underline that. Or somebody make a bumper sticker and I'll put it on my truck. The New Testament words for doctrine always appear in the singular when they refer to Christian teaching. Doctrines in the plural are the erring and often conflicting inventions of men or demons. Hold up number one. Or just hold up one finger. There is one single, sound, healthy Christian doctrine. And its proclamation must conform exactly to the apostolic pattern. So Christian doctrine constitutes an organic whole, not a loose assortment of unconnected items. And that, that's a difficult one uh, and we'll, we'll talk about it down the road, but there is only one doctrine. Okay, and you're like, wait a minute, there's many different doctrines. It's all one. Now, keep in mind, who's the, who, who's the, who's the, who brings the unity for this one doctrine? It, it's kind of like as a church, right? We're many people, but we are one body. One body, right? One church. Okay, we're almost done. Yeehaw! 
Christian doctrine constitutes an organic whole, not a loose assortment of unconnected items. When speaking of parts or aspects of this one seamless Christian truth, it is better, therefore, to speak of articles of faith rather than of doctrines. The Latin word articulus actually means joint. That is an organic part of a larger whole. So according to ancient Christian usage, which reflects the New Testament, the various articles of faith are mysteries. This word emphasizes the supernatural nature, content, and source of the faith, right? And, and the Latin translation of mysterion is what? Sacrament, right? So Paul says, uh, along with the fellow apostles, men ought to consider us as stewards of the mysteries of Christ, okay? So mystery, is that a mystery that body and blood can be bread and wine at the same time? Or vice versa? Is that a mystery? Yeah, absolutely. You can't put it under a microscope and figure it out. Same thing with baptism. Same thing with, you know, Jesus forgiving you through this guy or that guy. Okay? All right, let's go on or we won't finish. They can be known, so it, it's... Uh, blah, 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 blah. This word, mysteries, emphasizes the supernatural nature, content, and source of the faith. Its truths are not discoverable by human reason. They can be known only by the gracious self-revelation of the God whose judgments are unsearchable and whose ways are past finding out. So the organic unity of Christian truth yields a further conclusion. If one looks, uh, is that atomistic, atomist, somebody say that word for me. Atomistically, okay, I'll go with you on that one. Uh, atomistically at the differences among and within the various Christian churches, that is, if one counts so many versions of individual points of doctrine, the numbers can prove staggering. And such an approach, however, is wrong. And it's driven a lot of people, if you will, you know, from faith and from the church as well. Since Christian truth really forms an integrated whole, its various aspects must be seen as great interconnected syndromes or not as independent atoms. So here is help for beginner's doubt. Seen genetically and holistically, the basic alternatives total surprisingly few. Contrary to pop skepticism, which counts hundreds of denominations and despairs at the odds against any one of them being right, right, doesn't matter where you go to church, as long as you're going to church somewhere, there are, for all practical purposes, only three or four basic varieties. That is, models or paradigms of the gospel, and so of Christian doctrine. Okay, and let's see how Marquardt lists this. The Roman Catholic Church, the Lutheran, the Reformed, and perhaps the Anabaptist. Okay? Everything else, exotic and eccentric sects aside, simply amounts to variations on the given themes. Therefore, the basic choices are radically fewer and simpler than people often imagine. The first question is for or against the Reformation. Then it's two or three basic types. Difference between basic types can and should be faced frankly and fairly, then evaluated in the light of the scriptures rather than by the heart of partisan passion. These chapters seek to give a coherent overview of Christian doctrine. But a generic Christian doctrine, apart from particular confessional paradigms or versions of it, is no more possible than are generalized fruit trees without particular apple trees, pear trees, and the like. A choice among basic types is ultimately unavoidable. This book makes no secret of its Lutheran orientation, yet the reader is urged to accept no assertion unexamined, but to follow the apostolic plea, and let's read it together, to test them all, hold on to what is good. And in the chapters that follow, the decisive appeal will always be to Holy Scripture. 
Whatever is not solidly grounded and founded in God's word has no valid claim on the faith and loyalty of Christians. Thank you, Professor Marquardt. Time for a quick question or two before we close. Oh, okay, I got it. So his, his question for those listening uh, uh, online um, is, uh, uh, he came from a Reformed tradition. Uh, his question is, why do Methodists and Presbyterians get included in the Reformed category? Is that correct? That's correct, that's correct. Uh, I wish we had time to answer that question. It's, it's a, that's a very in-depth question. Um, it would simply, let me, well, let me try and take it this way. So, um, there are some Presbyterians, as, I mean, and obviously Methodists who would still practice infant baptism. But would they say that baptism saves you? Okay. So, so if, you, if you were to kind of draw as big of an, a tent or an umbrella as you could, and you were to start with some of the basics about baptism saving you, or the real presence of Christ, right, in terms of the body and blood present, the bread and wine, those would probably be the two big sticky wickets that everyone other than Roman Catholic and Lutheran would fall under. Pastor Ullman, Pastor Grady, do you want to add to that? Is that a fair response? Okay. Right. So there, there obviously are differences still, you know, and, and even on one or whether it's baptism or communion with some of those as well. So, yeah. Right, right, okay, okay. Okay, yeah, thank you for that. It does, it does get very convoluted and confusing. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think that's why Marquard here is making a distinction between Reformed and Anabaptist. And we'll find out if he addresses that down in the rest of the book. Okay, any other questions? We're a little past time, but I'll take one more if you got it. Okay, put your hands in the air. We finished chapter one. Yay! <laughs> all right all right pastor grady tag you're it you're up for next week so uh yeah chapter two he'll he'll probably like take a, a chapter every sunday just to rub it in my face so that, no that's all right okay let's stand hallelujah christ is risen lord remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray our father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Peace be with you. Amen.